This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360 with Ukraine's president in Washington seeking more aid and congressional Republicans resisting. President Biden now says the U.S. will support Ukraine for as long as it can instead of as long as it takes. Also tonight, harrowing testimony from a Georgia election worker about what the lies Rudy Giuliani told about her and her mom did to their lives. That and the warning a judge gave him about continuing to spread misinformation. And later, the newest example of how CNN's exclusive reporting on sexual misconduct in the Coast Guard is getting results, this time on Capitol Hill. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with Ukraine's war to drive Russian forces out at a stalemate and efforts in Washington to fund that war apparently at a standstill. Tonight, no sign yet that President Volodymyr Zelensky's meetings today with President Biden and top lawmakers have done anything to break that logjam. House Republicans are still demanding large-scale concessions on migration from Mexico before agreeing to any new aid for Ukraine, and a number of them say they oppose it regardless. Over on the Senate side, Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who does favor more Ukraine funding, said it would be, quote, practically impossible to pass a funding measure before Christmas, even if the two sides reach an agreement. President Biden, meantime, said he was hopeful about the chances of that happening, but that is just one of several messages he was sending today. As we mentioned at the top, he also signaled the limits of what Washington may be able to deliver, the difference between what it takes and what it can. He also warned Republicans against giving Vladimir Putin what he calls, quote, the, the greatest Christmas gift they could possibly give him. The president reminding them that Russian media is already gloating about the aid standoff and how GOP opposition benefits them. The host of a Kremlin-run show literally said, and I quote, well done, Republicans. That's good for us, end of quote. Let me say that again. This host of a Kremlin-run show said, well done, Republicans. That's good for us. That's a Russian speaking. If you're being celebrated by Russian propagandists, it might be time to rethink what you're doing. Whatever they do or don't do, time is running out. Congress breaks for the holidays on Friday, seeing as MJ Lee starts off our coverage tonight from the White House. So the president has long said the U.S. is ready to support Ukraine for as long as it takes Was that still his message today? Because it didn't sound like it. Yeah, Anderson, as long as it takes is the refrain that we have long heard uh, from President Biden when it comes to Ukraine. But we heard something a little bit different from the president tonight. He said the U.S. will continue to supply Ukraine with the supplies and the equipment that it needs for as long as we can. Uh, This is a really subtle difference, but I think just goes to capture the immense challenges that the Biden administration is now facing as it tries to continue showing its steadfast support for Ukraine including by approving the supplemental package that includes some $60 billion of additional funding for Ukraine. You know, even after uh, President Zelensky went to Capitol Capitol Hill personally to try to make this appeal to lawmakers, it didn't seem like he was successful in swaying any of the members who are not convinced that this is the right road uh, to take. I think this is a visit that has all in all sort of highlighted the very different place that the U.S. is in and Congress certainly is in uh, compared to the last time uh, that President Zelensky came here to the White House a year ago when he really received a hero's welcome. He was invited to make a speech to the joint session of Congress and really got bipartisan and overwhelming support for the Ukrainian cause, Anderson. It's interesting to hear President Biden driving home how closely Russia is watching the U.S. right now. 
That's right. Uh, you know, in so many ways, I think President Biden's speech was actually aimed squarely at Vladimir Putin. Uh, he said right off the top of his remarks that Putin is banking on the U.S. to fail in its efforts to support Ukraine and that we must prove him wrong, is what President Biden said. And some of the sound that you just played was so remarkable uh, because the president was basically saying that the issues that we are seeing, the fights that we are seeing over this funding for Ukraine taking place on Capitol Hill, this is isn't just domestic policy uh, he, uh, and political fighting. He said that the Kremlin is watching, Vladimir Putin is watching. Uh, he said if you're being celebrated by Russian propagandists, uh, it might be time to rethink uh, what you are doing. Uh, there was also another overarching, overarching message, uh, not just about Russia that is watching, but other would-be aggressors. Uh, the president saying that this is going to send a big message uh, to what other sort of bad actors might be willing to do, might think that they can do in taking forcibly uh, land and territories from other democracies. And that is why this is such an existential fight that we are talking about, according to the president. MJ Lee of the White House, thank you. Today's visit by Zelensky came on a day that we got new indication, really, of the enormous price that Russia has paid for invading Ukraine and human lives. It comes from a U.S. intelligence assessment provided to Congress. A source familiar with that assessment telling CNN it says Russia has now lost 87 percent of the active duty ground troops that it had prior to the invasion. 87% killed or wounded since the war began. Now that says, said, and it's frankly staggering to even imagine, Ukrainian forces are paying a terrible price as well. CNN's Anna Corrin recently spoke with some of them about how vital Western aid has been and what they fear will happen if it dries up. When you hit with the, with the modern weapons and with the Western weapons, of course, they're more accurate and they bring, let's say, more damage to, um, to the enemy. I'm afraid Ukraine will not be able to stand without our partners and allies. So this is the, as simple as that. If we let Ukraine go, if we let Putin win, then who will feel themselves safe here? I think no one. Oh, we're joined now by CNS Nick Payton Walsh in Ukraine near the front line. So Nick, President Zelensky said today his goal for 2024 is to, quote, take away Russian superiority and disrupt its offensive operations. What are you actually seeing and hearing about whether he can do that without more USAID? Yeah, without F-16s, really, I think it's a very long shot that they can reverse the problem they faced in the last counteroffensive this summer, which is the loud air superiority, they simply could not conduct the kind of pace of warfare that NATO had trained them to do, that NATO expected them to pull off. Now, Volodymyr Zelensky, really, unless something magically pops out of the hat before the end of this week, has laid his cards down, made this trip to Washington, met congressional leaders, met President Biden, and not come up with the money that is deeply needed by his frontline troops here. We've seen in the past days a real sense of frustration, anger, concern amongst troops that really it's going to be tough to continue this defence, let alone try and take back territory without the billions they've been accustomed to receiving or being announced every other week or so. Zelensky comes back too to a country... Uh, I think deeply anxious about the winter ahead. Today, we've seen intense shelling of the town of Kherson in the south. We saw some of that ourselves in the last 48 hours. Civilian areas pounded relentlessly day and night, almost like two armies are sort of duking it out inside the town, even though the Russians are across the other side of the river. He also comes back, too, to a nation that experienced cell disruption throughout today, likely Ukraine security services say, because of a Russian cyber attack that's impacted air raid sirens, 
here, the Air Raid Alert apps you get on your phone. Even here in this town, they've had to turn the street lights off manually. So a lot of disruption there, certainly. And to a political climate increasingly tense for Zelensky as well. His defence minister joked about how uh, the chief of staff here running the counter-offensive hadn't indeed been fired. A joke indeed, but a sign of the tension between the president and the man who runs the military operations here. It's going to be difficult this winter, regardless of whether or not the money suddenly comes out of nowhere. We've had some Ukraine officials suggesting that doctors, first responders may not get their salaries as early as January if the US doesn't stump up money essentially this week. As you say, this is exactly what Vladimir Putin has been waiting for. Western resolve, Western unity, remarkably coherent for the past nearly two years on this issue, beginning to crumble, beginning to tie up the existential issue of whether Ukraine to defend itself from Russia. Remember, a lot of Europe, a lot of NATO allies of the US desperately need Ukraine to do the fight for them here, because if Russia's successful, it might get closer to NATO's yeah. border. And so many Ukrainians deeply worried that they're beginning to see a winter of infrastructure attacks and Vladimir Putin emboldened, thinking finally he's outweighed the West. Yeah. Anderson. Nick Ben Walsh, thank you. More now on the resistance. President Zelensky is facing from congressional Republicans, seen as Manu is at the Capitol for us tonight. So what was the response from Republicans in Congress to the, the visit? Was he able to move the needle at all? Uh, no, really, he wasn't, Anderson. Even among the staunch supporters of Ukraine aid, among the GOP, chief among them, the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, still in the same position they were as they headed into this meeting, that there needs to be a deal with, uh, over, over po new policies dealing with the U.S. border with Mexico and the influx of migrants coming across the southern border. They want a significant amount of changes, whether it's dealing with asylum reform or changing how the president can grant role to migrants coming across the border, putting new physical barriers and the like, a wide range of policies, issues that have badly divided the two parties for years and years and years. But they say that must be dealt with first before they can greenlight new aid to Ukraine, which is why there are real fears, Anderson, about the prospects of getting a deal at all, given the divisions that continue to persist on this issue, despite those pleas, Anderson, Republicans said immigration must come first. Manaraju, right. thank you. For more on what happens if American aid dries up, we're joined by senior military analyst, retired Army Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. So, General Hurtling, I mean, how serious is this? Given the rate at which ammunition is used in this conflict, can you just walk us through what it looks like if the flow of weapons from the U.S. slows or is shut off completely? Yeah, there's a couple of things to talk about, Anderson. The first, what your previous reporters have all addressed, and that is, I think I was sitting with you on the 22nd of February in studio when I said one of uh, Putin's strategic goals was to further divide an already divided United States and a divided NATO. He has so far been unsuccessful in doing this, but I think President Biden is absolutely correct. Putin is receiving a gift right now from a strategic perspective perspective. From a tactical perspective, all wars, all battles have inflection points. Ukraine is at one of those inflection points right now. They cannot afford any kind of disruption in their logistics supply chain. Any kind of delay in terms of a drawdown authority, more ammunition, more equipment, uh, more support, and even the appearance of less support, as, as Mr. Putin is seeing right now, is critically important to Ukraine because they can't keep the fight going. Uh, 
uh, as Nick Payton Walsh said. The other thing that's important is we are entering a new season. This is the winter fighting season. Ukraine has been so far successful operationally on the battlefield. They have gained more ground in their counteroffensive. They certainly haven't gained everything they wanted to, but they have gained some. And what you're seeing now is the potential for them to go into a hasty defense situation and continue to strike long range uh, Russian ammo caches, fuel depots, uh, troop movements, which they can do with our help. If we take away the ammunition while at the same time Russia is being supplied with drones and artillery from places like Iran and North Korea, the fight will become uneven. And again, as MJ Lee said, this is an existential threat for Ukraine. They have to have a continuation of logistics in this fight. So what can Ukrainians do right now to prepare for potential Russia? I mean, will Russia be able to go on the offensive? Well, they have been trying to do that for the last several weeks in places like Adika. Uh, we've heard a little bit about that. They have not been successful. Russia has attempted to maneuver some of their new recruits into areas where they think they can be successful. So far, Ukraine has fought back and defended extremely well in the winter campaign. But they can't do that forever, especially if their ammunition supplies are dwindling. Uh, Europe is continuing to try and bolster the efforts. Uh, but truthfully, uh, NATO and the United States have learned a big lesson in this fight, that our supply systems have to be more robust than they were at the start of this campaign. And that's a lesson we've all taken away because of what we saw as a peace dividend in the 1990s with Russia is suddenly exactly the opposite of what Russia is doing today. They are uh, executing warfare and other, especially new NATO members like Romania or the Baltics or, or Croatia are very concerned about uh, a, a newly emboldened Russia uh, expanding beyond yeah. their territory. And Putin, in fact, has even said that. Yeah, General Hurtling, I appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up next, Rudy Giuliani confronted in court on his election falsehoods and the warning a judge gave him about repeating them, which he did just yesterday. Also, with the former president claiming he's immune from criminal proceedings, someone who was very much part of the story the last time the Supreme Court was asked to decide that question, John Dean, his take on all of that when we continue. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are. 
which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. When we left you last night, Rudy Giuliani just doubled down on false allegations about the mother and daughter 2020 election workers whose lives he has already upended. False allegations he's already been found liable for in federal court. That's how day one of the penalty phase of his civil trial ended. Day two included testimony from one of the women he defamed and a warning to him from the judge. CNN's Brian Todd has more. Powerful evidence in the defamation case against former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani. The jury hearing threatening voicemails sent to two former Georgia election workers. He died, you Also, powerful testimony from one former election worker, Shay Moss, about how Giuliani's conspiracy theories devastated her life after the 2020 election. Moss telling a federal court Giuliani's, quote, crazy lies about her and her mother spread everywhere at the time and led to threats against her family. Quote, I am most scared of my son finding me and or my mom hanging outside my house on a tree or having to get the news at school that his mama was killed. Moss's testimony came hours after Giuliani inexplicably doubled down on the lies he had spread about Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman, who was also an election worker. Everything I said about them is true. Do you regret what you did to... Sh- of course I don't regret. I told the truth. They, they were engaged in changing votes. There is no proof of that. And the judge in the civil defamation case against Giuliani rebuked the former New York mayor, saying his, quote, negative, quite defamatory statements about the two women could support another defamation claim. Rudy Giuliani should know that this is not going to help his cause. Uh, it is going to deepen the hole he is in, and yet he, he keeps digging. The judge has already ruled in this case that Giuliani spread false information about Moss and Freeman in the wake of the 2020 election. Giuliani has conceded that he did make defamatory statements about them, but he's argued that the statements didn't cause them any damage, even statements like one he made to the Georgia state legislature, telling them Moss and Freeman were corrupting the vote count. Surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. Moss and Freeman are asking the jury to consider awarding them between $15.5 million and $43 million for the reputational harm they suffered from Giuliani's statements and more for the emotional distress they've endured, which they told the House January 6th committee about. I don't want anyone knowing my name. I don't go to the grocery store at all. I haven't been anywhere um, at all. These are public servants, and he's essentially put them out there and caused them to be targeted by hateful people, by people who are seeking to do them harm. And he's really upended their lives. Rudy Giuliani already owes Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman more than $230,000 for failing to respond to parts of their lawsuit. A few months ago in a court filing, Giuliani said he's essentially broke because of all of his legal costs. So a judgment against him in this case would put him even further in debt. Anderson. Brian Todd, thanks. From civil to criminal court now, there's the fallout from special counsel Jack Smith's push to get the former president's claim of immunity in the January 6th case on a fast track to the Supreme Court. Now, as we discussed last night, this could be a decision, if and when it comes, that ranks among the most consequential ever for the high court, in that the question at the heart of it has never been fully settled. Perhaps the closest the court came was in 1974 with U.S. v. Nixon, which compelled then-President Nixon to turn over those Watergate tapes. 
I want to get some firsthand perspective on that now from CNN contributor and Watergate whistleblower John Dean, former Nixon White House counsel. John, in terms of potential significance, does any prior Supreme Court case involving the presidency, aside from U.S. v. Nixon, compare to the immunity ruling that Jack Smith is seeking in the Trump case? No, it is a uh, it is a pinnacle. I mean, in U.S. v. Nixon, the question was whether a president has executive privilege in a subpoena fight, not necessarily immunity from a criminal trial. So is there actual precedent from the Nixon case that could or should apply to the Trump case? You know, there's a little bit of language in the in the uh, in the, what they call the dicta, this sort of just remarks that indicates that the court then certainly thought a president had criminal exposure, uh, but it's not really expelled out. It's never been spelled out, never been fully addressed, never been fully briefed. During Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein, they wrote of Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski's decision to appeal to the Supreme Court, saying, quote, it was risky, very, very risky. Suppose the justices said no. Suppose it was an angry no. Suppose it was a sarcastic reminder to Jaworski that there is a court of appeals for such a reason and that no one receives special treatment, not the president and not an arrogant special prosecutor, end quote. Do you see any potential downsides to Jack Smith's gambit? I don't. I think he is one step ahead. Uh, I think he's got a stronger case than uh, Nixon uh, had, for example, with the tapes, uh, and certainly that Trump has in this case for total immunity. Given the dispute over immunity, I mean, to say nothing of the ongoing dispute over Judge Shutkin's gag order, do you think there's any way in which Trump's federal election subversion trial starts on time in early March? It's got a shot now. Uh, we'll see what the court, the high court does in taking this on and how long it takes them to deliberate. In the Nixon case, they did it from start to finish, Anderson, in 61 days. Hmm. And given the, the makeup of the court, I mean, how do you think they'd rule if they took the case? Well, that's harder to tell. Uh, you know, if conservatives are being true conservatives, they're not going to say that a president, any president, is above the law. Uh, so once they take that case on, uh, if they take it on, I think they will. Uh, they're going to go the distance and find no immunity for our president. Mm. John Dean, thanks for your time. Thank you. Just ahead, as intense fighting in Gaza continues, we've got two breaking news stories on the ground war there involving Israel's new attempt to go after Hamas uh, underground and also the fraying relationship between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu. We have details on both those stories ahead. Two breaking news stories involving Israel's ground operations in Gaza. A U.S. official tells CNN that Israel has informed the U.S. it has begun flooding some tunnels under Gaza with seawater, quote, on a limited basis. During a news conference, President Biden said he'd heard assertions there are no hostages in the flooded tunnels, but, and these are his words, quote, I don't know that for a fact. Also breaking tonight, the rift between the president and Israel's prime minister spilled into public view today. Biden told Democratic donors that Israel was losing international support for the war, and he also criticized Netanyahu's conservative government. Meanwhile, Netanyahu said he doesn't agree with Biden's vision of a post-war Gaza. We'll have more of that in a moment, but we want to begin with the tunnels and Alex Marquardt, who is in Tel Aviv uh, tonight. So what more do we know about this flooding? Well, Anderson, this is something that uh, the Israelis appear to be trying out. Uh, it could be a significant new tactic on what we believe are hundreds of miles of tunnels, at least according to Hamas's claim. Uh, the Israelis are doing this on a limited basis, we're told. Uh, they're doing it in tunnels where they do not believe the hostage hostages are. They're flooding those tunnels uh, with seawater. 
according to U.S. officials, speaking to our colleague Natasha Bertrand, they are unsure of how successful it's, it's going to be. Um, but it was important enough for President Biden to be asked about this earlier today. Um, he said that he had heard the assertions that the tunnels that were being flooded did not have any hostages in them, um, but he could not confirm that. He did express his concern for all civilians uh, in Gaza. Uh, remember, Anderson, it, it would not just be destroying the, the tunnel system. It would not just be destroying uh, the weapons that are down there. Um, of course, it could benefit uh, Israel if, if they were able to flood those tunnels and, and kill Hamas militants. But there are still quite a few hostages who are there, 135 according to the IDF, 116 of whom, I should specify, are still alive. And what else are you learning about this divide between President Biden and Netanyahu? Well, it really does appear to be growing. That daylight appears to be growing. The, the two men made comments today that, that showed that they are increasingly at odds uh, on, on some very important issues. Uh, we heard some of the most pointed comments uh, by Biden today about, President, about Prime Minister Netanyahu and his government uh, and the war in, in Gaza. He said uh, to donors, uh, this was a, at a campaign event raising money, uh, that, that Prime Minister Netanyahu needs to change, but that it is difficult because of his is far-right government. Uh, he said that, that Israel is rapidly losing global support because of what he called the indiscriminate bombing that is taking place. He went on to talk about this government that has all of these far-right ministers that he says don't want anything remotely approaching a two-state solution. He says that they want retribution against all Palestinians. Now, the Biden administration has said repeatedly they, they want a two-state solution, uh, but we have seen differences from both Israel and the U.S. about who will rule in not just Gaza, but in, in the West Bank following uh, this war. The Biden administration has said they want a reformed Palestinian authority. Uh, Israel has said we certainly do not want uh, the Palestinian authority to, to, to have any kind of control. And Netanyahu uh, is, is right there, seemingly, with his far-right members of the government in that he has not expressed any real support or any interest in a two-state solution, which is very important for the U.S. Anderson. Alex Marquardt, thank you. I want to get perspective now from CNN political and foreign policy analyst Barack Ravid. So we've now heard these two different points of view, Biden and Netanyahu, on both the war and what will happen to the fighting ends. How does this rift go? I mean, what is, if is Netanyahu doesn't want the Palestinian Authority running Gaza, are they still talking about some you know, Qatar coming in, Egyptian forces coming in? I mean, what is, what is the plan? Good evening, Anderson. Well, I think that, um, you know, when you read Biden's comments uh, from earlier today, and, of, and by the way, everyone who is interested in U.S.-Israel relations, this text is a must. I, I read it from top to bottom. Biden says amazing things there. For example, he says he tells about the phone call he had with Netanyahu when he tells Netanyahu, listen, you have to be more careful with uh, Palestinian civilians in Gaza with your airstrikes. And Netanyahu tells him, what do you want from me? What about the carpet bombing you guys did in World War II and the nuclear bomb you threw on Japan? And Biden says, I told him, this is not the 1940s anymore. We're in a different era. So I think it was. Mm. it's a very... It's very interesting comments, and I think it shows more than everything that unlike others in U.S. politics, Biden, on the one hand, he sees himself as a, a very big friend of Israel. On the other hand, he does not equate Israel with Netanyahu or his government. He makes this distinction, and it's a very interesting point. At this stage, I mean, what do most Israelis think of Netanyahu? 
I mean, given the huge well, intelligence you know, failures, the, 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 given, given he's not accepted any responsibility, whereas other members of his government and military intelligence has. Well, Anderson, you see a very interesting thing in the polls. 80, between 75 and 80 percent of Israelis support the war. And the same amount of people say they want Netanyahu to go the day the war, the war ends. So they want to destroy Hamas and they want to uh, basically destroy Netanyahu politically, which is, uh, you know, a very interesting phenomenon that I don't remember in, in Israeli politics. And I think that the day this war ends, or more exactly, the day that the high-intensity phase of the war ends, which is not very far away from now, it's, we're talking about between three to eight weeks, uh, I think the political game will start moving in Israel. And this, there will be this snowball effect that most likely will take us to an election in Israel in the next six months. You still have, I mean, these right-wing members of the, 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 the government of, of Netanyahu. What is their plan? What is it they want? I think a person like Itamar Ben-Gvir, the ultra-nationalist, the leader of the far-right party, Jewish power, that, by the way, the fact that Joe Biden, the president of the United States, know him by name and, and can explain his, you know, worldview is also something very interesting. Mm. Uh, but, you know, a lot of analysts in Israel think that this guy, Itamar Ben-Gvir, has the most interest to topple the current government because he sees Netanyahu as very weak right now. And uh, he might be planning that when Netanyahu announces that the first phase of the war is over, he might be planning to resign and say, you know, I wanted to go on, but Netanyahu is the one who stopped this. He's not right wing enough, so we should go to election and everybody who sees himself as right wing needs to vote for me, for Ben-Gvir, and not for Netanyahu. Mm. You reported that, that Israel is likely to reopen a border crossing between Israel and southern Gaza to allow aid trucks to enter. What prompted this and how much aid could potentially get into Gaza through this crossing? Well, Anderson, what prompted this is you know, pretty strong U.S. pressure. And our colleague Jeremy Diamond reported earlier today uh, that uh, um, uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, is going to raise this in his uh, meeting in Jerusalem uh, later uh, this week and that he's going to press the Israelis. And not, not long after this story ran, I got a call from a senior Israeli official that told me, listen, uh, most likely we're going to approve this U.S. request. And the reason for it is obviously that they don't want to see a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. But I think more interesting is that they need uh, the U.S. support for the ground operation to continue. And for that to happen, they need to do what the U.S. asked them on humanitarian support for Gaza. Interesting. Baruch, uh, Barack Ravid, thank you as always. Next testimony on Capitol Hill from four women about the sexual assault they said they endured at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, as lawmakers investigate how the academy handles reports of abuse, that and how some of those lawmakers credit our Pamela Brown's exclusive reporting here on 360 for leading up to this moment. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. 
This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. On Capitol Hill today, a Senate hearing sparked by exclusive reporting on this program earlier this year by Pamela Brown and her team on how leaders at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy buried findings of a secret investigation which corroborated evidence of dozens of sexual assaults. Two senators said this was some of the most powerful testimony they've ever heard. Four women who attended the academy from the late 1970s to today, each sharing how they say leaders failed to protect them. And then they spoke to Pamela Brown, who, as I mentioned, first broke this story. Here's her report. They're nothing but the truth, so help you God. These four women say they were all sexually assaulted in the Coast Guard in different eras. I was groped several times, sometimes with 30 laughing witnesses. Over the course of three days, he repeatedly raped me in that room. Two first-class cadets broke down my roommates in my locked door, entered our room, and jumped onto our beds on top of us including a current cadet at the Coast Guard Academy. What I thought was an innocent ice cream date on campus turned into a sexual assault that has haunted me ever since. A rare bipartisan hearing investigating the way the Coast Guard handles reports of sexual abuse. I've been here more than 12 years, and this is probably some of the most powerful, important, and on-point testimony I've heard. We learned about the fouled anchor report only because CNN found out about it, reported on it. CNN first uncovered a history of sexual assaults in the agency that were ignored or mishandled. The Coast Guard substantiated dozens of rapes in an investigation called Operation Fouled Anchor, but the results were covered up for years. The status quo can no longer continue. The survivors spoke of having their reports of assaults mishandled. The same company commander admitted that he didn't start an investigation because Quote, he figured that it happened on a date. You do have blonde hair and you wear makeup. And while current cadet Kira Grace Holmstrup says cover-ups are no longer a problem at the Coast Guard Academy from her experience, there are still damaging missteps. And then I got to talk to a chaplain. And when I went to talk to that chaplain, he asked me who assaulted me. And I told him and he said, oh no. He's such a good guy. The women spoke of the pain and feeling of betrayal that still lingers, some even decades later. So this has in many ways been a blessing for me because I finally have a diagnosis for the things that I thought were just personality quirks. These last 20 years was actually, in fact, PTSD. 
Last week, the Coast Guard released the results of an internal review, admitting it failed to keep our people safe and change is necessary. But the report doesn't include any punishment of assailants from the past. It's insulting. It's patronizing. After the hearing, we sat down with three of the survivors. I love that they want to help future cadets, but then they just left this mass carnage in their wake. And what does that look like for you personally, that mass carnage? Looks like a lot of expensive therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like broken relationships, you know, lost family, suicide attempts. Melissa McCafferty attempted suicide six years ago. The level that this organization pushed me to. And I am beyond lucky to be here today. I am beyond lucky. I frankly do not know how I survived. I flatlined in the ambulance and I flatlined at the hospital, yet here I am. What do you say to the women and the men who have been sexually assaulted and who haven't told anyone? I feel stronger today than I did yesterday. You made me feel weak. No, that ain't the case anymore. Now I'm stronger. Pamela, the, the women you spoke with today, they're skeptical there's going to be any meaningful change. What's the Coast Guard saying today after their testimony? Well, Anderson, the Coast Guard once again apologized to the victims for its failures and vowed change, saying in a statement given to CNN, we recognize and applaud the tremendous courage of the witnesses who came forward to share their personal stories at today's hearing. Their reflections and recommendations and those of all survivors are essential to our efforts to continuously improve our prevention and response policy. Uh, so, Anderson, it remains to be seen if this change will happen. Of course, we're going to stay on top of it. Yeah. Well, Pamela Brown, you've just done incredible, incredible work on this for a long, long time. Thank you. Thank you. And, and thanks to the whole team. As you know, it's a team effort, Anderson. Yeah. Really extraordinary work. Just ahead, this is Grandview University in Des Moines, Iowa, site of CNN's town hall with Ron DeSantis. Questions from voters begin about 15 minutes from now. We're going to preview the challenge for DeSantis less than five weeks out from the Iowa caucus next. Welcome back. Take a look at the scene at Grandview University in Des Moines, Iowa. About 10 minutes from now, Florida Governor and Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis will appear with my colleague Jake Tapper for CNN Town Hall. Governor DeSantis is going to field questions from Iowa's Republican voters less than five weeks before the Iowa caucuses, finishing well in Iowa, obviously critical for DeSantis, who's double digits behind the former president in national and state polls, and now trying to fend off a surging Nikki Haley. She just got a big endorsement a short time ago at a rally in New Hampshire by that state's Republican governor, Chris Sununu. There was a sweet older woman who has come to a lot of events, and I saw her coming in here. And she said, so are you going to finally endorse Nikki Haley for president? You bet your ass I am. Let's get this thing done. We are all in on Nikki Haley, undoubtedly. And you can feel the energy. You can feel it. And when you look at her poll numbers, when you look at the ground game that Nikki has laid, it's been absolutely unbelievable. And when I've seen her interact with folks, that's what it is. It's that intangible. She gets it. It's certainly a good, a big pickup for Haley. Earlier today, DeSantis' campaign manager told Ordana Bash that the expected endorsement was, quote, meaningful. Joining me now, two CNN political commentators, Kate Bedingfield, former Biden White House communications director, and David Urban, a one-time campaign advisor to the former president. Um, Kate, do you think DeSantis has an opportunity to pick, I mean, to surge in the next five weeks? 
I think it is an uphill battle based on everything we've seen. We've seen as the Republican field has continued to winnow, Trump has only gained uh, ground in the polls. So that doesn't suggest there's a whole lot of opportunity for somebody else to come in. But, you know, DeSantis has said time and again that he expects to win Iowa, that his expectation is that he's going to win Iowa. So he's put a lot of his eggs in the Iowa basket. I think tonight what he needs to try to do is connect with voters on a human level. I think, you know, we saw the debate last week. We saw the four candidates go back and forth on, uh, you know, sort attacking each other and attacking each other's policy positions. And so what DeSantis has an opportunity to do tonight is to try to tell his own story, to connect in a way that makes a Republican voter say, you know, I trust him uh, and he's somebody who I think I want to see in the White House. I mean, David, that is the strength of these town halls, theoretically, for a candidate. I think it's why they like doing it, because it is a form. I mean, it's an audience of people who very well, you know, want to vote for a Republican, uh, probably like DeSantis. And as as Kate said they want to see him as a human being. The Des Moines Register NBC News poll says 51% of likely caucus goers say that Trump would be their first choice. DeSantis far behind 19%, Haley at 16. Do you see any scenario in which either DeSantis or Haley suddenly surge over the next month? Listen, Anderson, it's it's a it's a Sisyphusian task for DeSantis to push that big rock up a hill, right? So Anselt's a great pollster um, last month in October. Uh, DeSantis was down by three. So he, he did move. Nikki Haley kind of stayed static at 16%. DeSantis up to 19%. I, I don't think there's any university wins Iowa, but I think it's important that he has a very strong second place finish. So if he finishes in the mid 20s someplace, I think that'd be a big victory for him. Give him a lot of momentum going into New Hampshire um, where he may not fare as well. But uh, he, he's, he's got all his eggs in this ba- one basket here in Iowa. He needs to do well tonight. He needs to do well on January 15th. And Kate, in that same poll, Des Moines Register, uh, NBC News, 51 percent or no, excuse me, 73 percent of likely caucus goers believe that Donald Trump can beat Joe Biden despite his legal problems. What does that tell you? Well, that tells me these other Republican candidates have a huge uphill <laughs> climb here. I mean, you have a, a former president who's mired in uh, in 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 court who is uh, charged with uh, trying to subvert our democracy. uh, And the Republican base in Iowa believes that he can win. So that tells me immediately in the short term, it's going to be a really hard, uh, it's a hard task for any Republican to get traction because he has this really intense, specific loyalty with Republican voters. Unless they get mired in court. Because being mired in court only seems to help They have five weeks to try to (laughs) overthrow our democratic system. Uh, You know, broadly, it tells me that the general election in November is going to be very close. And I think, uh, you know, there's a kind of tendency a year out to look at polls and say, you know, oh, Biden's stumbling or, oh, well, if Trump were convicted, he couldn't win. And that's just not the case. Our country is incredibly polarized. The bases are very loyal uh, to their party. And there's a very small sliver of truly persuadable moderate voters. And that's where the election is going to be won or lost. And the fact that Donald Trump's legal troubles uh, don't have Republican voters saying this isn't the guy we want to put forward to try to, uh, to defeat the sitting president means this is going to be a very, very close race. David DeSantis has touted this endorsement for the Iowa governor, Kim Reynolds. As obviously, uh, Sununu gave the, the endorsement to Nikki Haley. Trump is way ahead in New Hampshire. Could the Sununu endorsement help Haley enough on the margins that she pulls off a strong second place showing? Yeah, I, I, I think she will. I mean, she's, it's, you know, you have independents and Democrats allowed to vote in that, uh, in that primary there. So I think she will do well. She'll, she'll have a, a much stronger showing than she's going to have in Iowa. And uh, she's hoping that that's going to slingshot her then into South Carolina with some mem- momentum. But still, as you said, Anderson, the uh, the person at the top of these polls by a long, 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 long margin is still Donald Trump. 
by double digits. And that's not changing in Iowa. That's not going to change in New Hampshire. It's not going to change in South Carolina. So, you know, uh, a lot of Republicans are just kind of shrugging their shoulders and wondering, what's this all about? Yeah. Uh, Kate, in, in, I mean, the, there's this other poll. Let me, let me get this. The uh, Wall Street Journal poll, former president narrowly leads President Biden in a hypothetical matchup. Nikki Haley would beat Biden 51% to 34%. Do you buy that? Do you think it's accurate? I don't think it's terribly surprising, given what given what we've seen about how voters are feeling about a Biden-Trump rematch. I mean, we've seen a lot of uh, voters saying they would like another option. What I do think is that were Nikki Haley somehow to draw an inside straight and become the Republican nominee, she would be in the barrel, and she there would be criticism of her. And so I think it's it's uh, it's not representative of what this matchup would look like if she actually became the Republican nominee, which. Seems like it's a very long shot of happening. Beddingfield, David Urban, thanks so much. The CNN Town Hall with Ron DeSantis. Minutes away, more on the DeSantis' strategy next. Another look at the CNN Town Hall with Ron DeSantis, which begins in just a minute. A lot riding on his ability to connect with Iowa voters in these final four weeks and six days until the caucuses. Turnout, he says, will be key. One more programming note, Nikki Haley and Chris Sununu, the New Hampshire governor who just endorsed her, sit down for an interview tomorrow with their Dana Bash. You can see it at noon Eastern time on Inside Politics. But first, the CNN Republican presidential town hall with Governor Ron DeSantis. It starts now. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. 